The online dialogue series of RefuPoet was commissioned by the Special Initiative on Displacement SIF, program of the Civil Peace Service of GIZ. We appreciate the discussions and insights shared. The opinions expressed in these dialogue series are those of the speakers. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions or views of GIZ. A man I was having a conversation with randomly says, this refugee should go back home, back to their country. Their country is now safe and they've already costed us enough, don't you think? In an attempt to respond to these statements, I thought, irrational of me, a refugee, to explain myself to a national, a mind that was already made up, a mind that already had assumptions about these people, these people that had sucked the life out of this country. Because to wake up a refugee in a foreign place is to wake up an afterthought, is to know that you will never be wanted, never be at home, is to always depend on aid like you were born to beg, born to expect less, is your life to be made a spectacle because you, you will just be another story on another blog, in another headline, you will always be the sad story an expense to a calamity you never played a part in. You will always be that disease that plagued your lands or that war that brewed in your city. You, people ask like you asked for it. It doesn't matter if you played a part in it or not. I mean, it's your people with your problems and you guys never asked for the extra baggage, right? So what are you other than the tatters clothes on your back? Who are you except for a visitor who overstayed their visit? And no matter how much effort you take to remove yourself from that camp, you will always be a reject. You have no place in this country. No matter how much time you take to learn a new language so that you can be fostered into a new system, you, you will always have a funny accent. And I could tell you of the many reasons as to why I'm not ready to go back home. Because when you take me back home, when I'm not willing and ready, you're taking me back to those memories that are filled with dead bodies on the streets and those nights that are filled with screams and I could go on and on and on. And so I looked up to this man who I was having a conversation with and I said, you taking a refugee back home when they're not willing and when they're not ready is like telling a child who was raped by their father to go back home because their father has learned their lesson you see home. Home will never feel like home again. Thank you so much, Shiki, for that amazing performance. And a warm welcome to our viewers to the second forum of the refugee discussion. This is the second forum of the refugee discussion. And the discussion today is going to be centered towards peace and security. And we're asking the question, what is in these two words? Now, Kenya finds itself in a very difficult situation between a rock and a hard place, trying to balance its international obligation to the refugees and also the national obligation to its people. Now, the question is, can Kenya ensure national security while still admitting refugees? My name is Emmanuel Mamadi. And I'm Joel Hangi. 
from our first forum uh, on opening and closing refugee camps, security being one of the reasons why the Kenyan government has decided to close the camp by 2022, it's really amazing having this conversation today around peace and security. And we are so delighted also to have our partners, GIZ, Civil Peace uh, Service, Special Initiative for Displacement, ANICA Initiative, and in cooperation with Refi Poets today. We also, we are so delighted to have an amazing team here and our panelists today with us here. Thank you so much for coming and we are so happy to have you today. Yeah. Yes, Joel. And our hashtag is try my shoe. And you can reach us on our social medias, RefuPoet, and also at Anika Initiative. But before you go further, let's start with the introduction, perhaps, uh, for our panel. We have Ndindi Nganga, who is an advocate of the High Court and has more than 80 years' experience practicing law. Ndindi has been fighting for the rights of refugees, children, and other specialized groups in Dadaab. And she has also worked in Dadaab for a while. Welcome, Ndindi. Thank you very much. We also have Ajak Jokajak. Ajak Jogajak is a refugee lawyer and a trainee advocate at the Kenya uh, School of Law. And he, he also worked closely with, with refugees and uh, with Refugee Consortium of Kenya, RCK, back in Kakuma. We are so happy to have you, Ajak, today. Thank and, you, Joa. And we have Julie Matoke, who, who is a human rights lawyer. Julie is, is a lecturer. She doubles as a lecturer at Kabarak University Law School. And she, she's worked, she's, her focus is on litigation, human rights, and consultancies in the discourse. She has 80 years experience. And wow, indeed. Matoke, Matoke loves also dancing to rumba. Karibu, Matoke. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. And finally, we have Jane Doreen. Jane Doreen uh, is, uh, she's a, an independent lawyer specializing in international human rights and humanitarian law. And she's currently pursuing her master's of law degree from the University of Houston and currently working as a communication officer at uh, Alpha Safety Company, Texas. Welcome. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yes. Now, just getting to the gist of the matter. Now, starting with the questions that we had posed earlier on, what is in these two words, peace and security? when it comes to the refugees in Kenya. Perhaps I'd start with Ndindi. What is in these two words, peace and security? Hmm. All right. Um, peace and security. Um, when I think about the word peace, uh, specifically, um, we always think that it's, in the, it's the absence of war. But I recently learned that peace is actually has a lot to do with the dignity and well-being of a person. When they feel that their dignity has been looked into, when they feel that their well-being has been taken care of, and more specifically for how do, how do we achieve peace and that peace for, um, for refugees um, or, you know, or other or asylum seekers. So for me, peace means the, the, the presence of, of looking into the well-being and the, into, the, into the dignity of refugees. Okay. Yeah. Perhaps Jane Gould, why in? Um, <clears throat> when I think of peace and security, I think in terms of stability of um, of a community or uh, people, so some social cohesion and being able to live together and work together for growth, for, de for development. Yes, That's thank you so much, Jane. And as Joel highlighted earlier on, so the government had highlighted on 
matters of peace when it comes to the refugees, and that made to the government taking a stand on the closure of camps. Now, what predisposes the refugees to suspicion as a security threat to Kenya? Yes, Matoke. Um, personally, from where I sit, uh, the aspect of being a foreigner in another country opens you up to a lot of, um, you know, uh, sort of, uh, for lack of a better word, pointing of fingers. Um, and uh, for as long as you're, you're, you're different, uh, you're unique, uh, the blame will always pass to you. Um, when you talked about peace and security, in my head, the first thing that came to my mind was home. Home is supposed to be a place that is happy and welcoming and everything. Um, and uh, for lack of a better word, uh, to use the word a country of asylum, which is Kenya in this instance, uh, the refugees come to Kenya with the hope that uh, it's going to be home, a second home of some kind. Uh, uh, which is supposed to be stable and happy and probably, you know, heal the wounds that you have uh, previously faced. So the fact that uh, they're, they're probably sometimes too, because of their uh, backgrounds and origins, they're different. That means that uh, we are quick to point fingers in terms of, you know, uh, they're probably Al-Shabaab, they're terrorists, they're the ones who, you know, are promoted insecurity in Kenya. Uh, yet when you take a step back and look at it, I don't think that's the case. Okay. Mm. Maybe, yeah. Okay, thank you. Uh, I, uh, to weigh into what um, Matoke has said, if you see the reason why uh, refugees are actually seen as uh, being or being labeled as people who are security threats in Kenya, it is not something that is characteristic of their behavior. It is because of the history and the elements that are actually affecting where they are coming from. And they are seen as people who have actually come with the problems from their country. That is one thing that I have seen because during my stay in Kakuma and my interaction at campus, I've realized when people making jokes about the hostility in South Sudan and calling me like I'm some kind of a hostile person. You see, it is a history that is not seen in me, but because of the fact that South Sudan has been at war with itself for a very long time. Another thing that uh, is called blaming the victim, yeah? If you see someone is weak and, uh, and basically they have come now and it seems like there is a security that is being offered to them and other people, maybe the host community is not enjoying some kind of uh, the same situation, you seem to blame them for your wars, you see? And I think this is the predisposition. It's not a character that the refugees have. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, maybe, maybe to just highlight on, on the, the, the decision of the Kenyan government uh, pointing security as one of the reasons. And I think uh, we, we also understand the reason why refugees are targeted or labeled like they're the, the first element to, you know, to start with if they have to deal with security in Kenya. Uh, maybe you think there is other challenges that the Kenyan government are facing, uh, is facing currently that can worsen the security you know, situation in Kenya on top of you know, hosting refugees. Uh, what do you think of that? Okay. Um, we, uh, I come from a place where I believe that uh, countries are supposed to respect and protect its own people. Uh, 
And even if today magic was supposed to happen and we shifted all refugees back to their countries and we remained as Kenya, I believe we would still have a lot of problems in terms of insecurity, in terms of violence, in terms of, you know, uh, uh, corruption and things like that. Um, uh, so to speak, I would say that um, there's, a, there's, a, uh, there's a problem in terms of um, Kenya uh, having to learn to provide and protect all of the people within its borders because we have to appreciate and like developed countries, our borders are very porous. Um, and uh, for as long as we have porous borders, you can always, you know, anyone can always come in, doesn't matter whether they are a refugee or whether they are a foreigner or something like that. And that does not guarantee that whoever comes in through our borders is a good person, so uh, so, so to say. So uh, for me, I would say um, unless Kenya fixes its borders and uh, we have uh, proper laws or proper practical solutions that can allow other people to come into our country, whether they are refugee or whether they are foreigners, uh, uh, with proper checks and balances, then uh, whether we do away with the refugee problem or not, uh, the issues that Kenya is facing as a country and the issues that Kenyan, as for other Kenyans that we face, the problems are not going anywhere. They're still going to be there. Probably they're even going to be in tenfold, mm. uh, if I would say so. Yeah, now that we've talked about the solutions, yeah. we'll come back to the solution. Okay. We'll just get to Ndindi. Do you think that the government asserted security as one of the reasons for closure of camps? Do you think this is a legitimate assertion when it comes to closure of camps? You know, the, the whole issue about security, I think it speaks more to we as Kenyans. Because security, just like Julia said, it's not it's not something that came with the refugees, it's the insecurity rather. It's not yes. something that came with the, the, the refugees or the asylum seekers or any mi migrants for that matter. It's something that, is, that we need to look at as, as, as Kenyans ourselves. Because whereas the government blames um, insecurity on, um, you know, the, the, the activities, the, the, the ref refugees coming into the camps or the activities taking place in the camps, it's what about the fact that our security forces are highly compromised? in very many scenarios where they're supposed to actually be um, ensuring the security of our country, but then they don't. And, and it, it doesn't take a genius to notice the, the gaps that we have in, a, in terms of our security. Just like Julia said, our borders are porous. With the fact that they are porous, who's supposed to be guarding our borders? It's supposed to be security forces. I don't think there's anything wrong with refugees. It's our security that is highly compromised. And because it's highly compromised, we do not want to admit it. Or maybe we do sometimes, then, you know, we go all quiet and then we, we, we then point fingers, we go back to pointing fingers at the refugees, especially when an incident takes place. So the security situation, it has to be pointed back at the government. How are they securing the borders? When people come in to either seek asylum, they're migrating from one country to another, do we check their documentation properly? Do we advise them properly? And when you do find that there's an issue, what happens? Is a simple 10,000 going to allow you to allow, going to, you know, influence you to allow somebody to come in? Will you direct them properly to where they're supposed to go? Or, you know, that, those are vital questions which at times we don't quite answer them. Are we <laughs> saying we have bottlenecks when it comes to our checks and also to the government, just government doing the checks in terms of the, to the refugees? The government are the ones who are mandated. They're the ones who are mandated to ensure security. They're the ones. It's, it's, no, it's not anybody else. 
and therefore the back lies with them. I mean, just think about it. In our communities, for example, um, I'd think about any, any, any society, any tribe, we have security issues all over. Yeah. We don't go around saying, uh, you know, in this particular area, uh, there's so much insecurity. Let's get rid of everybody from that tribe in that area. We don't do that. We handle, we go, we go in and, and look for the gangs. We go in and look for, for the, the ones who are causing that insecurity. And I think it's just a way we look at the, the perceptions we have about refugees. And it really does speak a lot about the biases that we have. That when somebody is labeled or, or takes up the status of a refugee, what, what are the immediate bias, the, the prejudices that we have against them? And that at times informs how we, we, we interact with them. Yeah. Okay, maybe just to move on to Jen. Now it comes to peace. Let's talk it peace and also in terms of security. Thank you so much, Nini. Now, we see there's a confrontation between the Turkana people and also there's a tension between the Turkana people and also the people living in Kakuma because of the extension of the camps. Now, does this affect, it affects the peace of these people. Do you think it's a genuine concern yourself? Um, <clears throat> yeah, it, it tends to be a genuine uh, uh, Concerned, but it's like she said, it boils back down to her, the system and of administration within that camp. How are we relating to, um, how are we able to handle um, situations like that? Like, for example, if we have many people, uh, there'll be issues of access to resources. When refugees are there, there'll be issues of access uh, to resources, and that will create a conflict with the Turkana people, the locals themselves. So, how will um, Let's think of local administration. How will they come in to, in, to intervene and try to uh, allow them to kind of work together how to share the resources themselves? Okay, thank you. Sure. Yeah, yeah, thank you so much for highlighting some of the challenges, which is like, I think it's totally making sense. But I was wondering just based on what you have said, the, the question of refugees, it's a little bit complex because sometimes you might find people crossing borders without proper papers, documentations, and uh, it's really hard even for, I'm not supporting what the government uh, just said, but I'm just trying to look at uh, the situation itself and what can just push them to go to that extent and saying we have to, to finish with this, uh, you know, at the end of the day, because it's really complex and we can't handle. And and apart from helping refugees or hosting refugees, the Kenya, like each government has the the right to support their local citizens. And then I think that's where there is that kind of dynamic, okay, okay, kind of challenge between what what uh, what uh, let me say the government should privilege is is it you know the refugee. A community or you know the local citizen and that's where the tension probably can you know come from and maybe push uh, the Kenyan government I'm just trying to just give uh, like a piece on that but I'm not saying like that's the right th thing but uh, maybe to to go back to other kind of follow-up uh, let me say question on on the same matter Maybe to tackle a little bit on uh, our, our, like the neighboring countries, uh, you know, Kenya, we have some countries around. There is, is there a way you, you think that even the, the, those countries can help uh, the Kenya to ensure there is a security? Because before 
entering into Kenya, you know, they cross different countries and we, the Kenyan government welcome them here. So is there a way they can also enhance uh, security or help the, the Kenyan government, including the East Africa region, at the same time and, and also ensure the well-being of refugees and foreigners coming, you know, into our country? Maybe we can start with uh, Ajak and then we go to you next. Uh, okay, thank you very much. Uh, when we are talking about the issues of security and peace, uh, we have to first look back as to what is causing the government to actually say that uh, uh, the insecurity is to be blamed on the, the, the refugees. That is the first thing. Is it because the refugees have come in with, then uh, they are undocumented? That is the first thing we need to answer. Or is it because the refugees that have been documented are causing problems so for us to actually identify the problem, because if you generally just put a blanket statement as to the source of the problem, it will be so hard for the government to actually tackle. So let me take you uh, back a little and, and try to bring you in. So there are measures under which the government has to deal with threats, whether it is external or within. And those measures that the government has to employ is by identifying the source of problem, like Ndidi said earlier. So you have to identify the source of the problem. From what we have seen that the government is saying, the government has not identified that the source of the conflict is actually refugees, and it has not identified specific refugees as the cause of the problem. So if you cannot identify specific refugees, and then how do you blame it on refugees? That is the first thing. And if you have identified specific people as the people responsible, and then there is the general concept of individual criminality. It is applied to everyone. And the law says in Article 27 of the Kenyan Constitution that every person has the right not to be discriminated. So on what basis is the government actually pointing fingers at the refugees when it has not found any of them guilty. And if they are guilty, the law is very clear. There is no exception. You can be taken in for whatever that you have done. The community of refugees is not responsible for the single act of one person, maybe me. If I'm a terrorist, there is no need to blame the entire refugee community. The government has the procedures to deal with criminals. So such kind of person should be taken in and not targeting the whole refugee community. If going back by the fact of borders being porous, that is also a responsibility of the security forces because security is about defending the peace. That is what it is. So if we are supposed to defend the peace of the country, then we have to do our duties. We make sure that we protect our borders. And if we get people who are coming in illegally because the law says, if you're running away from danger and you come to Kenya without actually proper documents, the government will have to interrogate and find out whether it is true or not. If they find that you are actually running away from a problem, they will say, okay, come. There is UNHCR here. They are going to help you. You see? And if they see you as someone who's coming in to cause a problem, then they have a way of dealing with it internationally because there are treaties that actually handle such cases whereby, let's say, if you are someone who is coming in to cause a problem. Maybe you are running away because you have committed a criminal act in your own country. Therefore, 
even the other country can request for you to be sent back for trial. So I think that is how we should approach it. Thank you. So, May I follow? Yeah, yeah sure. sure. You know, interesting enough, I'm just thinking, I have, uh, in my slightly uh, eight years experience in practice, I made to get a case law where a refugee has been convicted, say for a terrorism-related offense. I mean, there's, it, uh, it would be interesting to see, uh, like he says, if the government actually picks it up, identifies these specific individuals, uh, individual refugees that are actually committing and uh, being a, a main source of uh, security threat and seeing how uh, and seeing their persecution being concluded and actually then uh, you know get, uh, getting to sentencing and probably uh, you know going through our judiciary system because our government is very stable we have the judiciary the executive and the legislature how come we are making very good laws we are having very good executive directives for example I mean closing uh, the, uh, the camps in Kenya and uh, how comes uh, the two arms of government have not done anything towards ensuring that the people who actually break the law the people who are actually source of insecurity in the country are actually arrested and tried in our Kenyan courts that are very competent. So for me, that would be an interesting discussion that I would uh, look Maybe forward to. Maybe do you think the protection issue can just, uh, you know, being the, one of the reasons why the Kenyan government can feel like it, it's not in a position to get into, you know, those kind of cases and um, have all the details? Because also there is that protection issue between UNHCR and the Kenyan government, they can't share everything when it comes to, to refugees uh, situation um, context. Actually, I think uh, over the years, the relationship between the Kenyan government and the UNHCR agency has really improved. And the UNHCR has, you know, built up capacity with uh, the Refugee Affairs Secretariat and, and uh, the Refugee Affairs Secretariat has also, has also built up relationship with the UNHCR to the extent that now uh, RAS uh, is now able to, you know, do a lot of things that uh, UNHCR was doing in the in the in the in the first place uh the aspect of protection like uh ajax says is not a guarantee for a refugee to misbehave in kenya i mean uh every day refugees who flee uh, who are probably moving from uh the camps in the dabo kakuma into the urban setting are arrested if they don't have a movement pass they undergo proper trials in kenya they are tried uh they are sentenced and then returned back to the camps. So because security is a major issue in Kenya, and it is one of the reasons that we're largely blaming on the refugees, why can't our security forces then take up the same way you know, they arrest them uh, when they are moving around without a movement pass or probably when they are found out of the camps without a valid reason, why can't we then have uh, you know, our security forces arrest these particular refugees, for example, uh, who are deemed, say, to be al-Shabaab, to be thieves, to be, you know, outcasts and things like that, to be arrested. Because even in the, even for, for the repercussions in our Kenyan laws, as a refugee, if you have an expired document and you haven't gone for renewal, you can actually be charged. If you're out of the camp, you're actually, without any reason, proper reason, you're, actually, you're charged for residing outside, uh, you know, I forget the offense, it's uh, residing outside uh, a designated uh, area, mm -hmm. so, to, uh, so to say. Uh, and we try them. And they get to to uh, to serve sentences. After they serve sentences, they are taken back to RAS. RAS transports them back to the camp. They apply for new documentation, and the and the whole problem is remedied. So let, why can't we just apply the same standards to security issues and security concerns? Uh, personally, I think the question of security has there there are underlying factors that actually uh, occasion insecurity problems in a country. So we may have migration may be one of them, but uh, 
lack of employment, you know, uh, for the youth of this country is, is another cause for insecurity or for the rise of, uh, of criminal activities in a country. Um, when there's a high level of corruption, the, all of those are underlying issues that contribute to insecurity in a country, which unless addressed is, is going to be persistent, in my own opinion. Okay. Now, moving besides terrorism and also security, let's look at the aspect of peace. We, we see that data was collected and found there was sexual abuse in camps among, sexual abuse and violence actually in camps, especially among the women and children, and also in deserted camps. There's also human trafficking also in camps, and there's also proliferation of arms also in camps. And also there's armed robbery in notable nearby the DAB, the DAB targeting. They were targeting aid agencies and also staff stealing from them. Now, this poses a real threat when it comes to the peace, especially in that locality, both for the refugees and also for the localities. So how do we go about this, perhaps, Jane? Um, <clears throat> uh, uh, what I would say maybe is... It's okay. Mm. Mm. Or maybe someone can help. Did you? Did you? Can you can win? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, the whole issue. I mean, I remember. Um, I um, when I was in the dub, um, there was one time when there was the whole incident where a teacher was kidnapped, and I remember it was very, very scary, because at the time. Of course, every morning we'd get into our vehicles, go out into the camps from the Dadaab main office, go out into the camps, and then we'd get back. So the, the, the kidnapping incident happened when we were heading out to go to, go to, the, to the camps. I, I didn't witness it, but then it, it, you know, it's, um, it's within where we were working. And I remember it was very scary, but we, we had to ask ourselves certain questions. We had to ask ourselves very, uh, what, what, who are these who are actually carrying out these particular um, criminal activities. Is it the refugees? Is it um, other locals? Um, is it, um, as we used to call them sometimes, shifters? I don't know if the word shifters is still used. <laughs> yeah. Who exactly is carrying out all these, all these activities? Like you're saying, there are, there are things that happen. It's true within all communities. And I think the moment we admit that even prolific, prolif um, that word is hard. <laughs> what you've just said. <laughs> or any other um, criminal activity, whether it is stealing, whether it is murder. I mean, I've represented um, 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 refugees and even um, of, who have been accused of a number of criminal activities. And like it has been said, they do happen, yes. Because they are human beings and disagreements happen within the camps and there are there could be criminal um, um, acti uh, elements within the camps that also take advantage of the fact that um, of, of the way the camps are set up. It's 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 an, it's 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 it, could, it can happen and it does happen. However, to like just what I just said, if you blanket it and say, you know what, all arms come from all all firearms come from the camps. It's, it's a very dangerous statement to make because you see now the repercussions of that are what? Close the camps, remove everybody, back home. Yet, that's why we keep saying there are systems. There's a way in which if somebody is arrested and convicted, they go through the legal justice system. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying that they are, I don't know if they are fire. I've never seen a firearm <laughs> in the camps. Mm-hmm. No, but I'm saying that there could be criminal elements just like any other community and the security forces come in to, to ensure that, that, that security is observed. Okay. And, and you know, Kenya takes a very stern point when it comes to things to do with the female genital mutilation, FGM. Now, bring this and also the aspect of Somali. Somali, we have Somali Kenyans and also Somali. Now, they've been mixing, especially in the camps also, in the Adab. Now, how do we go about this? Because it spreads the influence also to the locals. How do we go about this? I will answer this one because it's a very personal topic. Personal in the, in, in, in the fact that um, I, I happen to be a GBV specialist. Um, and we have looked at, it, at the various kinds of um, gender-based violence, especially to, that, the things that happen in the camp. Sexual offenses and FGM are very, yes, they're true. It's true they're high in the camps. Now, when it comes to FGM, there's, um, I'm not an expert in, 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 in terms of the Islamic culture or the Somali culture, but this is what I have observed and what we've been trained on, that FGM, first of all, is a very cultural, very cultural. And, and some people say that it's, it's, it has some Islamic co- components to it, but there's also a different school of thought that, that is very strong and says, no, it's not. It's not, it's not anywhere within the Islamic um, religion or in the, or in the Somali culture. So what we do is because it's something that is ingrained because people, parents do actually take their girls to, to have, um, to, to be, to, to undergo the cut. It is illegal under the protection, no prevention, actually prevention against female genital mutilation act. It is illegal. But then the, the, how do we, how do we actually ensure that then it's not happening? Because if, if you don't, if you don't um, el- um, educate um, persons who believe that it's their culture, they will go on and do it. They will hide the girls, they will cross them over to Somalia, and they will, be, they will undergo the cut. And that has happened before. So there has been a lot of, a lot of uh, sensitization about the effects of FGM. And I think, um, I don't have the statistics, but then I think it has really gone down um, drastically from very many years ago. It's not at where it should be, and it still happens. But then the, it's not, people know that it's wrong. People know that the moment you cross into, into Kenya, there is an act. If you're caught um, carrying out the act, in fact, the, it's, it's very interesting how the act states that if you're caught doing it, if you provide the tools, if you provide the house, if you hear um, somebody, that there's, a, there's, a, there's a, an, an FGM um, ritual, um, it's, it's, it's a ritual. It's, it's a ritual. The act, it's a ceremony. ceremony. Thank you. Ceremony taking place. You can be held liable if you're the parents of the girl and you know about it, and you refuse to report it. You can be arrested. So there, there are laws, and there are, there's a lot of sensitization happening amongst very many implementing partners, and even with UNHCR, it is happening because, and it it, it just needs to keep on, you know, because it's 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 an it's an age old culture. Yeah. But the more you sensitize people about it, the more they understand why it's it's really. Why would you want to circumcise a girl? It's just, it does not make sense. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I think what Matoki, you wanted to weigh in? Um, we, I wanted to come from the point where I say we have to appreciate the systems within which our government has decided to uh, host our refugees in terms of, you know, encampment is basically a camp. <sighs> And uh, when you enclose people and you limit the interaction between uh, the locals and uh, and uh, the refugees, 
then it starts creating issues and problems like, you know, uh, the, 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 the criminal activities that you talk about. It encourages, uh, you know, it, it limits cultural interaction and therefore encourages uh, bad cultures like FGM uh, amongst uh, the, the Somali conversation. But moving forward, you mentioned something about um, uh, so, uh, Somalis of Kenyan origin and Somalis of Somali of, of, of originally originally um, from, from Somalia, Somalia yeah. and the issue of uh, double registration. Yes. I know there's been a move by the government to try and demystify uh, double registration and how to actually help Kenyans, proper Kenyans, uh, rightful Kenyans who decided to become refugees because of resource issues uh, in in the country, and uh, yeah, also uh, to help uh, deregister refugees who decided to become Kenyans because they felt, you know, as a, if I become a Kenyan, I can now have a proper solution and I may not probably face discrimination. And I think it largely, it properly works for people of the Somali community because you can't really, because of physical features, you can't yes, really tell still, much, yeah. much difference from it. Um, uh, and I know the government has been trying to make movements and uh, I think, uh, over the, was it last month? There was, uh, there was a parliamentary session by Fred, uh, uh, the CS. Fred Matiangi, yeah. confirming that they had gotten the data and they were trying to demystify it and see how they could help. Um, I know the government has made efforts before to try and encourage this, but uh, it's non-commitment that is not, is not going to do away the problem. Uh, we've, I, I remember during uh, the late Ndrebon uh, Kaiseri's time, uh, there was a move to, move to use the IPRS system, the Integrated Persons for Registration system. And then now we are having, uh, we've had the vetting committees that have actually collected data. And a lot of people have, t have come in to actually say, you see, I'm supposed to be a refugee, but I'm a Kenyan and vice versa. But that has not uh, resolved the issue. So for as long as we're not resolving this, you know, double registration issues, for as long as we're not addressing the resource mobilization issue in the country, as a country for Kenyans, and then um, uh, embracing the aspect of burden sharing between NHCR and, and, and the Kenyan government properly, then uh, the refugee solution will not be properly uh, resolved. Um, and maybe I can give an example. Uh, in West Africa, the ECOWAS protocols have really worked well in terms of uh, resolving Sierra Leone and Liberian uh, issues of uh, refugees. It's worked properly in uh, Tanzania, where they, they had a large influx and then they decided, okay, let's embrace local integration. Let's give them citizenship. So perhaps the conversation Kenya should be having as a country, especially for the third and fourth generation uh, Somali refugees is what practical solutions can we give because uh, the refugee aspect is not, I mean, they'll close the dub, but what, what, where are they going? What's, what's, what's going to happen to these third, fourth generation people whose parents are probably passed on so they'd have no ties completely back to their home country? Um, uh, do we then say as a refugee, like the way, they, uh, I know for the ECOWAS countries, the way it works is that you have a five-year document that allows you to actually migrate into another country, into, say, uh, into if you're Sierra Leone, you can migrate into Nigeria, do your work for five years. If the situation ceases, then you go back to your country and get proper documentation, and you can still, because of the, of the, of the, encourage, of, of the cooperation between, country, between the, the ECOWAS states, you can then move back into, into the country where you are a refugee and actually work and contribute both at home and both at... Um, and both back in your country. And that has seen to reduce the number of uh, Sierra Leone and uh, Liberian refugees. So perhaps Kenya should now be encar having, uh, encouraging cooperation within the ESC community and, uh, with, uh, with, uh, with, uh, with, and uh, having conversations with Somalia beyond the voluntary tripartite agreement that they entered into to find practical solutions that can give this. I mean, I am sure uh, in Dadaab, for example, 
some of the biggest businessmen uh, businessmen who are of Somali uh, who are Somali refugees have employed Kenyans which is a good thing. We have uh, rich Kenyan businessmen who've also employed refugees, which is a progressive move. So how then, how then the question then becomes, how then does the country leverage this, uh, uh, these economic uh, relationships and this, uh, you know, personally, people have intermarried. How do they leverage this to uh, create resources for the country that will boost our economic power and resolve, the refugee, uh, and resolve security problems in the country? And we have peace. Do you think it's too late since the date has been set? I don't think... Uh, uh, I don't think it's too late. Uh, speaking as a lawyer now, <laughs> um, we can get remedies in the court to try and, uh, ha- and and request the courts to give orders that will allow for a conversation and solutions to be rolled out. Because what has been happening previously is, you know, the government will, imp- will implement something. The human, human rights uh, organizations will rush to court to stop it. And then we have a conversation about it for two days and then we keep quiet. For example, because of uh, the changes in terms of co- because of uh, post-COVID now, uh, because of the of, of the global shifts in terms of migration, um, we should be having conversation. Uh, the the, the uh, courts are looking at holistic solutions in terms of you know resolving uh, problems. So uh, let's have economics, eco- economists, lawyers, social workers, and all those people sitting on the table and coming up with a hybrid solution that can work. So, uh, I mean, we will chase them away in 2022, close the camps and say everyone, fuck and go. Which again violates the principle of Nantifolmo, which is an international, which has, which has international status that, uh, pr- that protects uh, refugees. What are the consequences that um, the United Nations uh, and its member states uh, can have, uh, can, have uh, can impose against Kenya as a country, for example? Um, but uh, more importantly, what solutions can Kenya decide to implement between now and 2022 so that we are not having people being refugees for 20 years. I mean, look at, can you imagine if you gave them, um, for example, a limited, uh, a, a limited residency, how much tax would be having right now? I mean, what, 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 is, uh, what is the budget for this year, guys, uh, that, uh, that, was, uh, that was recently led? Some of the gaps in that, in that budget can be fitted off from uh, the economic contribution that they make to this country. Hey, you're looking at it from an economic <laughs> point of view. <laughs> and I'm a lawyer. Which, I'm not saying let's go to court and fight it. I'm saying let's look at it from which an economic is, Which is a valid point. Thank yeah. you. Th- thank you. Let me just to get to Jack. You, we'll come back to the principle okay. of yeah. uh, reform. Yeah. Yeah. Jack, there's, a, there's also the aspect of, you mentioned about the encampment policy. Now, this is a 2012 encampment policy, which require the refugees to live exclusively within their assigned camps and can only travel with a pass. Now, we've seen this being infringed and refugees getting out of the camp without passes. How do we go about this? Okay. Uh, talking about encampment and the problems that uh, comes with it. You know, encampment is, is, is one of the problems that why Kenya is facing these current issues, yeah? We have to first identify that because when you enclose people in a particular place where they have limited opportunities and uh, hospitality facilities are not there, you will expect them actually, if the government is restricting their movement to go and get access to these services, they will try as much as possible to look for ways to, to get out. Let me speak in the terms of uh, African setup before the current uh, uh, before the current demarcation and border issues came in, yeah. If I'm in South Sudan previously, and uh, my 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 community has been attacked, 
I would actually have the records of running to the neighboring community and they will actually host me. They will show me a place to settle and, and there would be no problem. That is what used to exist, yeah? But currently, because of identifying a particular people as uh, giving them an identity of refugees and putting them in a specific location where they will have no access to, to basic uh, and uh, necessary services within the country, it is one of the major contributors. And for Kenya to actually solve this issue of encampment and the, and the evils that actually come with it. So the first thing that the government should do is to see whether it is capable of actually incorporating these people into the various communities. Let people live wherever they feel like. They will be comfortable. Because, uh, okay, at, and let others who decide to be in the camp, let them be in the camp. Because I know there are people who cannot live outside the camp and the government is doing it for the interest of such people. But if there are people who are unable to stay in the camp, maybe because they have seen that they have economic independence and they can actually depend on themselves and contribute uh, to the national development, like um, Julie has said, the government should give them that leeway to actually settle anywhere. Like, for instance, myself, at my early age, I could not live outside the camp because I was depending on the UNHCR to provide all my basic needs. But at the current stage, I can actually look for a job and for myself and stay anywhere in any part of Kenya. So if you take me back to the camp, I will really be trying as much as possible to get out of the camp. If I cannot go back home because I have, I'm facing challenges, I will try as much as possible to get out of the camp. And that is why it is good, like Julie said, if the government... Because one thing is that the government has underestimated its obligation to protect refugees. And if the government is really try, want to actually let these people go back home or to find alternative solutions, then the current uh, situation, uh, the position that uh, the, threat, the, the Communist Secretary for the Interior has adopted is very good for them to actually sit down with other international community, uh, communities and talk about how, what do we do about this? These are too many people. We cannot just let them to, uh, we cannot just let them come into our country and give them the freedom to roam around. Can you help us take a share, uh, take them to US, take them to Netherlands, Switzerland and all those places. And then I will take another share. If you think that you want to take those who are economically independent, let it be an agreement. I want people who are economically independent and they can contribute to the national development of Kenya. But those who are vulnerable because of a third world country, you as U.S. as a first world, can you do this? You see, those kind of uh, sitting down and talking issues out is the only solution. Because if you put them as a community, then there is an African proverb which says, every community has a madman. So that community, you cannot target them because of their madman. And you are leaving your own madman. Talking, for example, of the armed issue that was said before. How many communities in Kenya are armed? Talk of pastoralist communities. They're carrying guns. So if you're talking about one uh, refugee or two or a group of gang uh, refugees who are having guns and you want to now to actually put refugees in that category of people who are the, causing the national security issues, then you, you are basically being hypocritical about the issues that are actually facing Kenya's large. So that is my thinking. The best way is to actually sit down. I like what they're doing. The current talk if they do not actually breach the procedures because there are procedures provided in the 
at the national level and at the international level for this kind of incorporation to happen. So that is the best way. And I believe if they involve refugees to be part of the program, we can even think of how to help them uh, come up with solutions. Other countries are willing to help the Kenyan issue. Kenya is hosting a huge number of refugees. We understand why they are having to say what they are saying. So we all understand. But you have to come up with a very, very formidable way of solving it. But you cannot just say, no, today I have to let you go. I have to let you go by all means. If you say that you are opening the floodgate for everyone to criticize them and that kind of profiling is not even good for their protection. And you know you have an obligation to protect them. Yeah. So I think that is how we're supposed to look at it. Maybe, maybe just on that note, uh, on just what you have said, I was wondering as a lawyer, or like anyone can respond to this question, do you think singling refugees as, as the cause of insecurity can be like amount to violation or discrimination you know, against refugees? Since, okay, you have violated other reasons that can cause insecurity, you know, in Kenya or other challenges that Kenya is, is facing currently. Now, pointing refugee, like since the Kenyan government has to resolve this issue and they're like, let us start with refugees, first of all, because they probably, they're also causing some harm somehow. So is that a form of discrimination or violation? Uh, if we have to go in a legal way, can you say that? Or? Um, I, I would uh, say that um, just pointing and identifying as refugees in itself profiling. And for as long as we are profiling either on ethnic grounds or probably on uh, racial grounds or something like that, then uh, that automatically amounts to discrimination. Because um, in 2017 when you had clashes, Kenya had refugees for the first time. Kenyans became refugees in Uganda. Uh, and it took a conversation between Kenya and Uganda before they could be brought back, be voluntarily repatriated back home when the clashes were over, and we actually accepted them back and hosted them. But look at the largest number of refugees that we are hosting in Kenya, and the state of political affair, uh, and the state, and the, and the state, uh, and the state of affairs in their respective countries. Somalia has been unstable for quite some time. Uh, Ethiopia is currently being discussed today in the United Nations Security Council because of its instability. I mean, there's been issues in Djibouti and Eritrea. Um, we recently, uh, a few years back, we had the cessation of, you know, Rwandese refugee status. And so this, uh, this is an evolving thing. And just identifying and profiling is actually boosting the problem. So the time we spend on refugees are bad people, refugees are doing blah, 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 should be time spent on uh, we have resolved the Rwandese situation of refugees uh, because there was a time limit and there was cessation. Now, let us look which country is a bit more stable, for example. South Sudan, we have tried to resolve and probably they've fallen back. What are the... And Kenya is sitting on, on discussions about South Sudan and encouraging them and trying to rebuild the society again. Uh, what are some of the things that, that we implemented that have failed that we can actually implement to try and stabilize the country so that tomorrow we'll be having a conversation with South Sudan about how can you take back your people in phases uh, because your country has become more stable. So as much as um, Kenya is, you know, chairing security concerns in the, uh, in the Permanent Security Council for the AU, those are, uh, Kenya should lead by example. You, you can imagine if Kenya wakes up today and says we don't want refugees, okay, Rwanda wakes up. Uh, says uh, which other country hosts uh, Uganda wakes up and says we don't want refugees I mean so where are they going yet they are brothers and sisters uh, either directly they are our friends 
and, and, and things like that. So we first of all have to stop by profiling and finding solutions. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe just to get to Jen. As she, as Matoka has alluded, do you think Kenya is losing its humanitarian face by trying to repatriate the refugees? Is Kenya losing its humanitarian face? Um, oh, yeah. If the more um, they continue to profile and bring up issues about um, closing out the camps, yet most of these refugees look to Kenya for that for for that solution. Of course, we we tend to lose we, we will tend to lose our humanitarian face. So we need to um, we need to look to the treaties that we we voluntarily signed and ratified for and and uh, create implement more policies. If our issues are security, how are we handling them within our government? What policies are we going to to impl- to uh, enact? to strengthen and tighten the the issues of security the porous borders the conflicts with uh with the locals how are we going to strengthen that to allow integration um uh of the refugees into the community uh, uh, for example some um uh, refugee, let's talk about this issue of registration and and being able to access these services Kenyan, the Kenyan government doesn't pr- provide that for refugees at, at the moment. But once they're able to access those services, it would be easier for them to even fend for themselves, as, as Jack said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Perhaps, Nindi, is the government frustrating the refugees by putting it so hard for them to register? Oh, most definitely, yes. <laughs> um, and now, being a signatory to the United Nations 1951 Convention, how do you go about this? Because, you see, this is defying the, the convention. And what picture does it paint for Kenya, the international community? In the international community, um, we, first of all, as you know, as Gina said, we are signatories to the 1951 Convention, the 1967 Protocol, and a number of other treaties and conventions. Um, the implementation of that. In as much as we have local laws, you know, the Refugee Act um, and all other you know, laws related to that, trying to discuss the whole issue about refugees. But the more we, we don't have proper solutions or durable solutions, as we call them, the more we, we dance around that issue, the more we, 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 we have um, knee-jerk reactions um, on matters that are not even related to the refugees, we are losing our face. We are going against our obligations. In fact, sometimes I wonder, we need some brave people to come in and actually you know, hold the government accountable to our obligations, our international obligations. Because our systems or our lack of a system has actually failed, we failed the refugees. And that, for me, I believe strongly, that is what has caused us to have a really negative perception around uh, about refugees or any migrants yeah because for as long as we have a horrible um, perception for as long as we 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 look at them as you know um, like the poet said those other people those people who we, we don't we don't see them as actual human beings you know that informs so many things within our community it informs how we 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 interact with them um, and you know we as I just said, we put them in a in, in a camp, 
you know, the encampment policy. We, we give the movement passes, like back in 1950s when we had those passes and the colonialists. We, 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 we ration them, give them food, specific food, you know, uh, once a week. We give them one tap. We don't allow them to. You know, there are so many violations that take place, we don't, and we don't even see them. We just think, you know what? Um, um, they are terrorists, and we think you're terrorists, and therefore stay in a camp. We have gone again. We have failed them. We have completely failed them. The, the Universal Declaration on Human Rights, it's very clear that everyone, all human, for as long as you are a human being, you have inherent human rights. You have them. Discrimination, non-discrimination is one of the principles, a very strong principle. Freedom, peace, very strong principles. Have we as a Kenyan up, up, upheld those principles? I think in terms we've not, and we've had to move to court severally. Yeah. And, and, to, and before, before you blame the government entirely, someone from the government actually mm -hmm. might ask, the treaties and the policies that come with this, mm -hmm. they, they pose a limitation, especially when it comes to, it doesn't address the issue of security. Now, how do we go about it? Because the treaties, they are there to support the refugees, most of them. And they give you the rights, they give you the way forward to it. Now, there's a limitation when it comes to addressing the security threats and facing the country. How do we go about that? But Emmanuel, you've said it. Security is a mandate of the government. If we see, once again, if we are looking at refugees as the ones who bring in security, then we have a, it's, it's us who are seeing it like that. We, uh, the government, why I, maybe I, I do sound like I'm really blaming the government, but it's because we are the ones with the structure or supposed to have the structure. We're the ones with the laws and regulations. We, we, we move to parliament to, to, to enact laws. We go to court every single day to, to try and, 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 and you know, enforce those, those laws. We are the ones who actually are supposed to look into, you know, all those laws, all those policies. And when we do, how do we actually, um, how do we then treat the persons who are, you know, we're supposed to be protecting, yeah? If it's a matter of security, the government we are supposed to provide the security. If they fail to provide security, now we can't turn around and say, ah, you know, uh, we have failed. Uh, we, are, we don't know what to do. So let's just return. It's, it's, it doesn't make sense. You are, I think it's, it, it really sounds a lot like um, we are really, really, we're, we're not taking responsibility for our mandate, for our, for, our, for our responsibilities, yeah? And I think that's why I'm coming, I'm really, I really sound like I'm coming out strong about, against the government. I, we do acknowledge the, the many things that our government has done. Our government has done a lot to protect, our, to protect us and to do all those things. But when it comes, how come when it comes to the issue of refugees, persons who are supposed to be, who come into our country to seek refuge, why are we then not doing what, what we're supposed to do? Why are we then coming up to say, you know what, we don't know what to do. Therefore, let's return them back. We do know what to do. We have the laws, we have the regulation, we have the force to do it. Then let's just do it. Then let's not let's not make comparisons, um, you know, you know, uh, false comparisons, co comparisons, and then say, you know what, the refugees are the are the cause of, no, 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 they're not, they're so, not actually. So does that mean the government is masking itself under insecurity? I think the government is trying. Um, Kenya is a member to I forget the two resolutions on security. The one that I think it's thirty two fifty, the one that deals with women. Uh, violence and security, and then uh, they recently came on board uh, in 2015 uh, for Resolution 2250 that uh, is a call for uh, governments to uh, address 
uh, issues of conflict and embrace uh, and encourage youth, youth people, uh, uh, sorry, <laughs> encourage the youth to take part uh, in, uh, in processes of different countries, whether foreigner or locals, to try and uh, resolve uh, uh, conflicts, try and uh, understand the aspect of security and things like that. And uh, the resolution, especially resolution 2250, has seen a movement by um, governments in Africa largely engaging the youth because when you have a lot of conflict and the youth are not properly engaged, then the extent of the conflict tends to stretch out for so long and a lot of uh, effect uh, of negative rollback effect comes back. So if the government, uh, and I know Kenya is one of the champions for it actually, uh, on the peace and security front, uh, where there's a conversation in our county governments, including countries that actually host refugees uh, on engaging uh, you know, the youth um, uh, the, uh, the youth and women on uh, the issues of security, violence and conflict resolution mechanisms and things like that. Then I, and uh, the government has actually come up with national action plans for these things. So I think it is, uh, we, it, it is not too much for us to ask the government to actually go beyond the national action plans and actually implementing this uh, and actually implementing. And remember, a resolution is not even very binding on a country, but they're doing it. So uh, they cannot uh, hide under the aspect of, you know, international laws protect refugees uh, when they're actually abiding by resolutions of the Security Council that have no proper binding force uh, in a, uh, to a country. So the fact that we're already taking a step in implementing national, uh, acknowledging uh, international laws, coming up and, uh, and signing up for resolution and, and becoming members to the resolutions, and uh, then uh, now implementing by doing national action plans, the government can go beyond and say, let's roll out a face, a face of, uh, you know, um, encouraging. And uh, over the years, I know the government has worked with refugees uh, in terms of encouraging, um, um, I forget the name, uh, cross-cultural interactions in terms of, you know, uh, even if it's World Refugee Day, for example, Okay, the, the host community is involved, the locals are involved, uh, 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 the refugees are involved, and it, it, and it encourages, you know, integration and, and people uh, working together. So if they're able to do this for, uh, for, uh, for, the, uh, for the resolution 2250, then I see them going beyond the national action plan, which can actually be implemented. So they're not starting from scratch in this conversation of saying we are closing the camps in 2022. If I was so an the advisor, resolutions are there. The, the resolutions are there. They're actually implementing it. They actually, they actually have a budget line to where they funded uh, for the national action plan to be implemented, and a lot of uh, young Kenyans, uh, because that resolution describes a youth as someone between, I think, eighteen is it fifteen years and twenty nine years or eighteen years and twenty nine years. I forget, but uh, one of those. And they're actually involving them, and there's a lot of conferences, there's a lot of conversation and encouragement of cohesion and things like that. So let us have some, let us have the, a, a national action plan for security for Kenya as a country, and let us start implementing it and realizing it before 2022. So that in 2022, when they want to close the camps, we are actually evaluating and saying, so we had an action plan that gave a certain solution, to what extent has this solution been implemented? Then let's say, uh, let Kenya say, as a country, we have implemented. 50%. But we feel the remaining 50%, we need another five years and we need funding for it. And let's also funding and let, have, let us have a proper solution for it. That's how things like local integration and giving residency and citizenship are done by other countries. So I, don't, I see no harm in us borrowing our best practices from the countries that have had a success with it. I mean, not on, uh, I know Tanzania makes you denounce your nationality, but Kenyan laws are good. 
it allows you to have dual nationality. So there's no harm if today uh, a Jack here becomes uh, a, a, a registered a Kenyan citizen and he's able to practice law in Kenya and South Sudan. And uh, in fact, South Sudan is rich in oil. You can imagine the amount of oil partnerships that we can make in this country and how much money we can make. Um, but I'm, I'm, I am moving towards a holistic solution as opposed to either a political solution or just a legal solution or an economic solution alone. Yeah. I think implementation is where we are, that needs to be emphasized a lot. Okay. Mm. Yeah, implementation of all these plans. Okay, Jane, you wanted to... Uh, she actually, uh, they both actually summarized it. But um, there are actually steps in place that we have that we are not really doing. Uh, uh, even with the last case, um, on when, when they initially wanted to close the camp, they went to court. The court said, with the non reform principle, we are uh, we are obligated to under that non-reformal principle. But in the event that um, a refugee has committed a crime and and is is has been convicted, when the government is determining whether they should send them back, the court decided that they should weigh the gravity of that crime proportionally to the fear, the reason why that um, refugee came into the country in determining such as. So there are systems in place. It's just that the government is not implementing and there needs to be a push to, um, to or even, I don't know, some check system uh, mm. oversight committee body to make sure that these systems are put in place and they're actually implemented for the benefit of all of us, not just um, uh, Kenyans, but also for the refugees as well. We actually have a system. The National Security Committee of, of Parliament, I forget who chairs it right now, but they're the ones who do the checks and balances, especially on conversations towards uh, refugees. So if you have a committee, uh, a, 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 a part of our Kenyan parliament that actually deals with the security question, and I think Mutula uh, Kilonzo uh, Jr., I think he's a member of that committee, if I'm not wrong, uh, they actually do the checks and balances for it. And then we have the counties implementing the National Action Plan. Then uh, the security, the National Security Committee of uh, Parliament can actually check and say this was the action plan. Who are the implementing people? Let us hold you accountable. So for me, I don't. Uh, we actually have the systems. We have actually part of the system implementing things, and then we have another part that is not implementing. So uh, in a short way. Yeah, in a short, short way, cap. and probably, and maybe uh, this is a very academic <laughs> thinking I have. Uh, that the government can actually uh, start uh, asking these governments that are, uh, that are unstable, like Somalia, you know, you need to start paying up because they're hosting your people. You need to contribute towards realizing solutions for these people, either financially or through resources or just something. Mm. You think they'll pay up? I think the, state, the, the, the principle of cooperation among states uh, is something that uh, a, lot of, uh, uh, a lot of countries have a problem engaging in because of the issue of status or sovereignty. But I think if there's good political will, I am sure solutions can be found. Okay, maybe just before we go to the break, uh, Jack, you have the last word to this. Okay, uh, on this, in the security aspect and the obligations of Kenya, let me just start first with the, with the obligations as outlined in the statutes and the constitution. So 
all of us here are aware, but because of people outside there may not be aware, it's good to cite. Like Article 245 and Article 26 actually uh, import the international uh, statutes to be actually laws in Kenya. That is the starting point. So Kenya has an obligation. And once you have decided to be an hospitable person, it comes with costs. Hospitability is not something easy. And it binds you and you have to stick with it if you have put it in your laws. And like you said before, or whether uh, Kenya is actually uh, violating its international obligation and whether uh, security threats have been contemplated at the international platform. Security threats have actually been contemplated because Article 33 of the 1951 Convention, uh, Article 2, it gives exceptions to which Kenya can actually denounce you or can actually refold you back to your country. So it says that if you are a spy and if you are uh, be seen to be involved in terrorist activities or uh, the third one I've forgotten, then this kind of a person can actually be uh, rejected and they can be sent back to their country. So as long as you are seen to be a threat to national security, you can be sent back to your own country. So there is an international framework. And just like Julie said, the problem is the deep state, which is the government, said the cabinet secretaries, are not consulting enough with other institutions like parliament to actually come up with a cogent and a, and a very good framework for dealing with these issues. And that's why we are having to talk about this thing. And if the government is following their due procedures as laid down in its own statute, it is the same government that actually set these standards. And it says the circumstances under which it can actually forfeit, but it has failed to go back to see what did they say previously. So that is the biggest challenge here. Thank mm -hmm. you. Uh, that's, that was well said, uh, Ajak. And then I think as we are trying just to... Uh, continue with our conversation, we have tried to highlight other, you know, issues that people are trying to playing, you know, ignoring those issues, but they are there. And, and I think the Kenyan government is trying, or will try with this time up to 2022 to see what we can do with the help of our lawyers here. But maybe as we're going to our break, we'll have to welcome our artist here, Shiki, again on the floor and She'll give us, share with us a piece of spoken word again, and we'll be back to our conversation. Welcome, Shiki. Most Saturday afternoons around our estate are filled with kids playing all kinds of games. But the one game that intrigues me the most is the game of hide and seek. I will notice how my son's face will glow and beam every single time he had to go out and play with these other children how his smile will run from cheek to cheek. But in the beginning of the pandemic, being only two people in the house, I was my son's only option as a playmate. And trust me, we both knew that it wasn't a good idea because I can be lazy and he can be a nag at times. But being that we only have each other, we had to make it work. So we played all kinds of games, from skipping rope, playing cards, inventing new games, everything but his favorite game, hide and seek. I will notice how he would often try and nudge me to play this game, 
how he, how he will do these small chores around the house to make me happy. Then he would look up to me innocently with these big brown puppy dog eyes and say, Mom, this is what you're going to do. I'll count, then you hide. And when I find you, that means you're it. But for the life of me, I wasn't able to play this game. Cramming myself into small spaces hiding. Blending myself into nothingness. Blending myself into the darkness so that I'm not seen brings back an overwhelming amount of emotions that my bones fight heavily to forget. And thank God he wasn't born yet to remember. I was only six months pregnant with him when it happened. It was a Sunday evening around 7.30 p.m. My husband, daughter, and I were just from a family gathering. We had just gotten home and started to unwind when we had those screams. We had those chants. We had those shrills of cry and desperate howls. It's the kind that you don't doubt. The kind that you don't wait to confirm. Because you know what's coming. You know who's coming. You know what's going to happen when they find you not ready, like a lamb that offered itself to a slaughterhouse. Evenly spread itself gently for its ordained judgment. And I know what you might be thinking. How could you have known? How could you have known if you didn't go out and confirm? One, gut instinct. You always know when you're in danger. Two, there were some rumors that had spread earlier about the war that erupted, but never in a million years would I ever think that we would have gotten there in the first place. Okay, so you knew about it. Then why didn't you move earlier? Why didn't you run? Move to where? Where was I supposed to go? That was our home. That was our land. That was where our ancestors lived. Where was I supposed to go? That was the question I asked myself when I was in fetal position in my neighbor's backyard, praying to God so that these people don't find me. Every footsteps that will approach, I will shudder. The voices that will scream. The heavy metal scratching the tarmac. I would hear these estate kids playing this game. See how they would anxiously get excited when they were almost got caught. Sometimes when they were caught, they would let out this shrill cry of excitement. Theirs might have been by excitement. Mine, mine was filled with dread and fear. I also noticed with this game, there was a way you could save yourself. You could run back to the place where they were counting and tap this wall, scream from the top of your lungs, tapo, to alert the other people that you were safe. I was wondering, was there an option for that, like that for us where we weren't told about? Was there a place where we could run to? A safe haven maybe? A safe world where, where I could alert other people that I'm safe and now they can be safe too? I often wondered how I found myself in a situation where I didn't sign up for. So no, I don't want to play this game of hide and seek. No. I don't want to cram myself into nothingness blending with the darkness. No, I don't want someone charging, running up behind me, trying to catch me as if their life depended on it, even if that person is my son. But the only problem I have is that I don't know how to break my son's heart by telling him that I'll probably never play this game of hide and seek with him. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Shiki, for this wonderful piece. I, I guess this is one of the, you know, stories. It's, you know, the way she's 
speaking, it's more of reflecting on people's life story back in their country, and uh, I guess refugees who, or other people have, who have went who went through those kind of experience can easily reflect to you know that piece, and that was really wonderful. And thank you so much for that. And maybe back to our conversation, we were having that wonderful you know discussion here and. Uh, we are also, you know, looking forward, you know, hearing more from our panelists. And uh, I would like to maybe uh, direct my question to you, Ajak, since you are having a refugee, you know, background and now finding yourself here speaking as a lawyer and give us some guidance on what is happening in the country and uh, toward, you know, our discussion topic today, peace and security. We'd like to know what is your experience back in the camp, in, in the camp, in, in Kakuma, and the transitions, uh, you know, that you had, you know, moving from now the camp to where you are currently, what is the difference and what, what you can share based on, you know, our topic today. Thank you very much. Uh, going back to the camp as a child and uh, where I actually studied in my primary school, and talking about peace and security back then, I remember a few incidences where maybe the the camp has been attacked by the the local community back in 2003. I think I was in class three, and um, it really wasn't a good thing because it was a disaster. It was like the time I ran from South Sudan to seek refuge in, in Kakuma because. Uh, we we only had rumors and you know as a child you never actually pay attention to what people say so we'll go back to the tarash and play football in the sun and so one day we just had gunshots and uh, you hear people rushing people the families they are coming to actually the tarash to come and look for the children and people are running all over and it was really not a good thing so we ran and we we sought refuge in in the Ethiopian community because um, by um, Dinka by tribe and the Dinka community is the one that had a problem with the local community. Uh, after now, I don't know actually what really caused uh, the thing. Uh, I just read recently that it was actually something to do with marriage that had gone wrong between the two communities. <laughs> <laughs> so it is it wasn't really a very good experience. But you will have to appreciate Kakuma also because of the opportunities that it gave me. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here today if it were not because of Kakuma. I went to a good school, a primary school. We used to learn for just four hours, uh, but it was sufficient for you to actually get what the teachers were teaching. Kiswahili was not taught at the time. So mostly when you reach class seven and eight, they will teach what is called Ngeli. And uh, that's what you get out with in primary school. You get to know all the Ngeli and maybe a few grammar here and there. So uh, that is uh, what I can actually remember about Kakuma. Kakuma has given us uh, the chance. But the problem with Kakuma is that <clears throat> if you are not determined and if you are not someone who is very hardworking, it will be so hard to pull yourself out or to bootstrap yourself out of that situation because some of my colleagues are there. It has become a cycle. They grew up there. They married someone who is in the camp. And that life is a cycle that they cannot change. But if 
and you can't go anywhere if you have no means and you did not pull yourself out. But for some of us who really worked hard and maybe go to and got good grades and got the scholarship to come and study university, uh, that is how now you see yourself getting out of the camp. You see, for us, we, we were lucky or at least we tried our best to get the good grades get the scholarship that are respond, uh, that are offered to the refugees. And then this way you find yourself, you find that you are more comfortable here uh, and that you feel like uh, the situation that was in Kakuma is a place that there are no opportunities. Yeah, mm-hmm. And even if you go back to the camp, <coughs> because I went back to the camp in 2014, I worked as a refugee and they only give you a very little amount compared to their pay rate for the locals. Yeah. Uh, they, it's, they, people see it like a token instead of what you are earning for what you are doing, yeah? It's like you're giving back to your community and for us, we, we're not supposed to pay you. We're only giving you a token because there was a schoolmate of mine whom we were working together at the time we in the same class, but we were being paid differently, <laughs> you see? So you feel those kind of uh, situations. Then you see like, okay, come is not a good place for me. If I am someone who is capable of doing something and I'm being paid in that manner because maybe of my status, yeah? So you feel like you are safer in the city. Like when I worked here in the city, uh, I was working in a good law firm and we were all paid equal, whether you are a national or you are a refugee, you are paying tax, whether you are a national or you are a refugee. So those kind of experiences, uh, at least when I was here now, that's when I felt like, okay, I'm part of this community, yeah? But when you are there, you really feel like you're not part of this community. Yeah? You are someone who has been isolated, you've been given a title, and you're supposed to mingle with the rest of the community. So those are some of the few experiences maybe I can talk about Kakuma. But the good thing is, just like I said before, opportunities, the starting point is there because you can't go anywhere. They, there are facilities that help the people who, do not, who cannot fend for themselves in Kakuma. Yeah. So in essence, if I may say as last word, eh, the camp is good when you are starting, but it should not be forced on people to actually stay there. Mm. So that is my position. The camp is good because it brings people together. It gives the UNHCR and the government of Kenya a chance to protect you and to give you the necessary uh, resources that are required for you to actually develop and to grow, to become the person that you wish to be. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you run from South Sudan, you can't fend for yourself. But once you are someone who who is economically independent and you can do things for yourself and you can contribute to the economic development, you should be given that leeway to maybe go anywhere, just like the constitution say, for a Kenyan, you can reside anywhere, you can fend for food anywhere, and you can establish a place to stay anywhere, you see? So I believe like if you're a refugee who is independent, you should be allowed to actually explore the boundaries of Kenya. Go mix with different communities and make friends and make your life. Maybe you can even, if you have fear of going back, you can marry a local. And life goes on, yeah? <laughs> what, is, what, is, what do we say about that? Will that be your passcard? <laughs> to being a, being a Kenyan. As, as, a Kenya, as, as a Kenyan, do you think that uh, something, you know, making sense or you can support personally? Um, yeah, um, the issue of being, they should uh, being given more opportunity yeah. to, to move around to maybe become a, uh, 
entrepreneurs or venture into business to be able to be stable on their own mm. will really help them. For example, um, many complain of uh, Kakuma and maybe Dadab, the living conditions, uh, they live in harsh conditions, the climate is dry, farming is difficult. Mm. So there are instances of those who've managed to move out and are able to have managed to lease or land within who've moved to the abdan centers and have managed to lease land and are farming and are fending for themselves mm. so it creates an opportunity for them to better themselves and um of course inject into the economy when uh, an economy for a good economy for us will in turn the consequence consequently um uh, affects them as well posit in a positive light yeah okay and uh, he has talked about the integration. You talked about the integration, also the security when it comes to it. Maybe Ndindi, you can answer this. How easy and possible would it be to have local integration of the refugee into the into the Kenyan community and also the economy? Um, how easy yes. is it? Yes, um, possible. Is it possible? I, I because you worked in that that app, right? Yes, yes, I yeah. Have. So no. perhaps you could share that experience and how easy will it be? to transition the refugees into the economy, to the Kenyan community? I, on the part of the refugees, they do, it's, it's within the nature of a human being to want to, not, not to be in, uh, placed in an, a secluded area. So they do want to come out. I mean, that's why we have a lot of um, uh, incidences of, um, you know, um, refugees leaving the camps without the proper movement pass and all that, yeah? Mm. So it's, it's within your nature to want to interact, to go places, to visit, you know, to do all that. For the, for the refugees, I don't think they have a problem. The, one, the problem comes in with, with you know, with, uh, with regard to the, the, the locals. Now, we, we need to understand that, that even the refugees also need to be part of our community. As even just Ajak has said, he was able, he was given the opportunity to go to school and to reach where he is right now. Now he's a lawyer. And that needs to be accorded to the refugees. I don't know. I think something I've been thinking about even throughout this discussion is what are our fears when it comes to local integration? And perhaps if we are able to answer that, if we're able to answer why, what fears those are. Um, because in terms of, um, the, the, well, uh, we, we, we're social beings. The refugees ought to be allowed to, to interact with the, with, with the locals, to go, to move around to wherever they want to move around. Um, then, you know, we've talked about security. That, that can be sorted out by the, by the ones who are supposed to sort it out. But then in terms of, of, of uh, movement, they should be allowed. And I think local integration is one of the um, most, uh, one of the solutions that we have when, mm -hmm. with regard to the whole refugee um, scenario and we can set up systems and um, we've, we've talked about it we can set up systems on how they can be locally integrated I mean right now we have a lot of foreigners who have alien cards um, the government knows how many people from each um, nationality that are in the country um, they're able to keep tabs on them and again back to that whole economic issue um, yes, they do pump in a lot of, um, a lo they can actually pump in a lot of, um, into, into our economy. I mean, I think about um, where I live right now, we, we are, the, the, I, I, I do know very specific urban refugees who own grocery shops, salons. Um, I know one specific one who owns a, a small mini, mini market. 
and and they're thriving and they're good and they'll pay their taxes and they'll you know they're providing us things and we're providing them we're, we're you know we're exchanging it with money it's it it should be like that it should be a thriving a, th- a thriving society where everybody is accommodated does that mean that we should switch off the button of voluntary repatriation when it comes to the issue of refugees first of all i don't know how voluntary voluntary repatriation is <laughs> because it's like you're telling somebody we want you to go back but we want you to want to go back yeah. <laughs> so, I, i don't know that that's, that is a um a, a, an argument that we've had with that vol- vol- voluntary repatriation whether it's actually voluntary it should still be encouraged for people who want to go back home because yeah, listen we all want to go back home we all want to go to back to a place of familiarity we even want to go back and find out are my relatives okay um the lands that i left in my country are they still there you know um because refugees actually did have a whole life they owned lands they had businesses they had they were they were entrepreneurs they were they were professionals some of them might want to go back if the conditions back in their country of origin are safe enough to go back so yes their option should still be there it should not be forced voluntary repatriation <laughs> it should not be that it should be voluntary you can go back home or you can settle back here okay thank you yes perhaps you could weigh into that not okay um how is it is it going to be to implement uh, local integration we are already implementing local integration by you know just encamping them in the in the camps doesn't mean you restrict our locals from inter- inter- integrating uh, from interacting with them and uh, they've been uh, like he says uh, they've been intermarriages uh, the children go to school together and things like that so why not take it a step notch higher to actually prop- give, probably give them proper documentation uh, in terms of even empowering the documents they have uh, to uh, for them to interact more freely uh, in terms of movement uh, set up businesses get work permits and and things like that so we don't necessarily have to give them citizenship we can actually give them residency mm. and say uh, we can give you residency for 20 years if you're in good standing and uh, you can show constructive contribution to Kenya as a country we'll give you uh, citizenship uh, i think uh, it is it is something that i would be very interested to see happening and i would encourage the government to implement actually would like to actually support that idea in a little bit by showing something that uh, urban refugees are facing at the moment mm-hmm. take for example someone who is economically independent this is something i encountered recently mm-hmm. i didn't know that the ids that are given to refugees are actually defective they're not helping them yeah. the purpose of giving an id is to help you actually for you to to be able to get services using it yeah but if that id can't assist you then what is the purpose of you being issued with an id for instance you cannot register with an mpesa you can not open a bank account uh, with the, your id until some special procedure has been adopted and and that one defeats the purpose of being issued with ids if government of kenya acknowledge you as a lawful refugee then they and you you are able to undertake some actual business activities then people should be given ids that are working that are going to assist them because getting these services is very difficult i like i've told you i had to get an assistant from unicr to go and sweet talk maybe uh, uh, equity bank for them to actually open a bank account 
uh, my bank account. And that situation is not good. Every time we have to go and look for a UNICR officer to come and assist you to open a bank account. So what is the purpose of government of Kenya issuing these refugee IDs? It's something that is, and that's why it is very important, like what she has said, uh, that <coughs> we should actually give them some kind of permanent residency and for these IDs to have a consistent ID number. You see, the refugee IDs that are given, you are given an ID, after expiry, you get a different number, which is different from the previous one. And this one is causing a lot of problems outside. If you're a business person, you will lose your property and you cannot access bank account. You really be in a mess. Yeah. And the landlord do not understand those issues. They're kicking you out. Mm -hmm. So these things are things that we need to talk about and the government need to address them. And, and yeah. do you think that the local refugees, the real <laughs> refugees, they are they are they are being given a seat at the table when it comes to making of these policies? Besides, because you mentioned about uh, the UNHCR representative and are you people gi being given enough representation with the UNHCR and are you people given opportunities to sit at that, those tables and also articulate the policies? Uh, you see, I suggested something like that before because it is one of the challenges that uh, refugees face. We are being represented by mostly the UNHCR officials who mostly happens to be Kenyan or few other nationals here and there. And the problem that actually face refugees, it is the refugees themselves who knows, yeah? And they're able to give good suggestions as to the way forward. But if they are not allowed to sit at the table, and then there will be no way for these uh, people to know what is really affecting you. So it is our appeal that refugees should be given some platform for them to actually have a dialogue with the Kenyan government also. When people are sitting down with the Kenyan government and the UNHCR official, we should be there to actually give our voice as to what we are facing and what needs to be done, yeah? So that is my thought. But I don't see, okay, if you have been employed by UNHCR, okay, these are one of the platforms. Because right now, Kenyan government is saying, we are not giving you opportunities. UNHCR is saying, I will look for you opportunities, you see? <laughs> yeah. So, so that is, I will appeal that we be given a platform where we sit down, contribute ideas. The government, as the as the as the owner of uh, offer services, should just go and sit down and see whether they are brilliant, whether they can adopt them or not. Yeah. So that is what we can say. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Lindy, just to get back to you, uh, you've seen Kenya being a signatory, going back to the 1951 UN Convention. There's also another convention that Kenya is a signatory to. And there's also the operate on principle. They don't operate on a vacuum. Now, Kenya, having gone against this principle, what consequences possibly is Kenya facing? Mm. That is a good question. <laughs> um, but the government will not come to me and and say that I have said something against them, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm open here, right? Yes, you're <laughs> open. Some, some, of the, some of the consequences, I think, um, it's just um, some of the, it's, um, I can say it's um, our international, internationally, um, we um, are held accountable. We are held accountable um, through those obligations. Um, and that's why I was actually asked if there's anybody who actually has the, the, um, the guts to actually take our government. One of the ways in which governments are taken to task is through, you know, um, you know the, the, the African Union, for example. 
Um, and that's where um, um, you know, heads of states and together with their governments are actually called to account for the actions that are things that are happening within within their country. And also for again, if there if there are actions which are against the conventions or protocols or any of the international instruments in which they have, they have ratified. So that is one of the ways in which, in fact, I, I remember there's one time there was a lot to do with uh, peer, peer it, was, it was more or less a peer review mechanism that was, that was supposed to be happening. And I think it, it has taken a bit of a slow pace, um, um, especially for within our East African community. Um, I don't know why, but then we are supposed states, um, heads of states, and even the states and the government are supposed to review each other in terms of the international instruments, their obligations, and the, what they are supposed to be doing. So when it comes to, I don't know if governments can be penalized. Maybe they can. Um, maybe they can. But then there is a system in which um, within, within the African Union, within our, our own um, East African community, we can actually hold heads of states um, accountable for their action or inaction. Yeah. Um, just to add on, uh, as she talks about penalties, and maybe this would be an overreach, but a radical approach would probably to be like something like, especially where there's proper um, and direct violations against refugee communities. Perhaps it's time the international community had conversations uh, towards implementing things like economic sanctions, uh, you know, uh, discouraging uh, donor, donor funding from coming into countries so that each, uh, um, I know it's a radical solution, mm -hmm. so that uh, each country would then be kept, be kept up to par. It would probably affect the developing countries and not the developed countries. But then I still think there's a way uh, those can be implemented because whether we like it or not, developing countries have the huge, the most, uh, the, the the most huge burden in terms of hosting refugees, uh, especially in Africa, and uh, probably across Asia to some extent. Um, so why not? Uh, just as much effort as as much effort they put in giving donor funding, why not? You know, also impose. Uh, consequences such as economic sanctions, withdrawing, and, and I mean, you can imagine if uh, UNHCR withdrew funding from Kenya, how many people, how many people would lose jobs? Um, what do, how would we manage our own refugees, uh, the refugees that we host, and all those things? Will so that necessitate the Kenyan government to go extreme. But you also, uh, it it may necessitate them to go extreme, but then for how long? Because I mean, you can imagine what happens if donor funding is pulled out. Um, Kenya voluntarily forcefully repatriates refugees back. What happens to our, bo our porous borders? Won't you be more exposed to terrorist attacks, to you know, at just stupid attacks, uh, attacks that can be easily avoided uh, because because of because of this? So it's one thing to actually acknowledge we have a refugee problem in the country. It's another thing to actually acknowledge that we need proper solutions without violating international law. Uh, principles, especially the ones that have, that have attained the status of, of discontents, because uh, whether we like it or not, it's it's still going to come back. Uh, it would be very sad for us to go back to a scenario like the Rwandan situation when it happened in 1994, where the entire international community was ignoring the Rwandan situation, and then uh, all of a sudden we are upsetting up tribunals, trying to hold people accountable. But the damage has already been done. Yet, if uh, proper, uh, you know, pr proper, uh, uh, yet if proper. Uh, implementations and consequences were implemented at that particular time, the, I don't think the Rwandan situation would have been that big, uh, especially when it started out. But the fact that everyone was ignoring, oh, I'm minding my own business, I'm respecting state sovereignty, which is an important thing, but uh, what has, has, has been the after effect? We still have Rwandese refugees in Kenya 
who cannot even go back to Rwanda uh, because uh, they still don't feel safe to go back, despite there being a cessation of refugee status again. So uh, why not uh, have consequences? Why not have a time limit for uh, refugee status to expire? So that if in five years the situation in the country is not improving, we're giving you residency. If in 20 years its residency is not working, uh, security is not resolved and residency, uh, you become a very good resident, let's give you citizenship by registration. If you go and start uh, funding terrorism or funding piracy or something like that, then we take away your citizenship. It's pretty much simple. We impose on you, we take away your citizenship. And then we say you can go back. We are allowed dual nationality. You can go back to your country. This, uh, I mean, I'm an academic in another world, so I am thinking, <laughs> I am thinking progressively. <laughs> yeah, so maybe before you go to solutions, uh, Jane, Kenya was elected, just to shift gears a bit, in the United Nations Security Council as a non-permanent member. And is there something Kenya can wield to this when it comes to the matter of refugees? Mm. Hmm. Um. Dindi, you can you can weigh in. Let me weigh in on that. Um, with they say, with great power comes great responsibility. Yes, <laughs> we quote that a lot. Superman. And I think that we should actually take advantage of our current position um, as non-permanent, um, as, as a non-permanent member, to actually, um, and, and this is not just for donor, get trying to get more money. <laughs> <laughs> no. oh. We should actually, um, because I, I tend to. She said I, she'll cut the donor, so. They should not hear her saying she wants to. Yeah, I mean, please don't quote me on this one. <laughs> but yeah. I think we should make very specific. Um, how do I put it? The process of coming up with um, policies, which inter internationally, I think we should actually be able to. Um, to what's a word? There's a word I'm looking for. To be able to influence. To, to influence the, the, even the creation of more resolutions, more um, very specific, very specific resolutions when it comes to the the the, the, the African context of conflict, because it's it's very specific. Conflict happens all over the world, but then there are very um, specific ways in which we can handle it. Even the refugee situation, it's global, yet there are ways in which we can actually um, tailor make it to our own. Um, to provide solutions in our own sector, in our own country, sorry, in our own communities. And I think we should take advantage of that, of, of the position that we are in right now to push for more, um, to, for specific resolutions. I've been waiting by there to see, are we, are we doing it? Come on, come on, go, go for it. Don't, don't, we shouldn't be afraid. We should actually just go for it, gun for it. We have great academics. I mean, there's Julia. Mm, yeah. <laughs> we have academics. <laughs> we, have, we, have, we have great minds in Kenya. Sure. We're able to come together. And our government, we can. We can actually do it. And if we don't take advantage of this position, it will go. Mm. We fought really hard for it. Right, yeah, <laughs> and we should take it. advantage. So one of the ways is to actually influence um, resolutions to be passed for specifically addressing our situation here in East Africa, in Africa, you know, um, because that is a very, because um, we, um, we, we can come up with, those, with, with homegrown solutions and which would work for us in, within the African context. Okay. Yeah. Jack, is there anything Kenya can do with this position when it comes to the situation at hand? Okay. Uh, Kenya is, when you look at the uh, the East African uh, integration, 
Kenya has been seen to be more progressive and it's been seen to actually uh, flood the markets outside there. If you, if you go by the statistics, you go to South Sudan, Kenyans are trying to do everything here and there. You go to Uganda, they're trying to actually participate in the, in the regional affairs of, of the East African community. Yeah? And it is easy for people to understand uh, the perspective of Kenya. And it is because Kenya also has interacted with other, with other countries and other communities that have come to Kenya through the refugee program. Uh, and that is why Kenya, you see, is being seen to be more progressive. And I believe if Kenya is going to actually lower its guards and protection of the refugees, it is going to have repercussion because there is that each each feeling for everyone. Yeah, <coughs> you feel like Kenya is doing you a favor. So you see a Kenya here, you feel friendly. So with the current manpower that the Kenya has, it is it is very good for Kenya actually to take a step, like Ndidia said and come up with programs. If they want to influence the refugee situation in Africa, they should be in a position to do so. And possibly because Kenya has been seen to be one of the countries that is in East Africa that is hosting so much number of refugees and, and it has maintained its peace for a long time. It could be the one reason why Kenya was voted in at the, at the assembly of the, uh, yeah, yeah, sure. So, Kenya now should be more progressive instead of trying to abdicate its duty and responsibility at the international level. Okay. You want to bring your academia? <laughs> Kindly. Um, personally, I agree with what Dindi says. Um, and probably I think, uh, for lack of a better word, it is time uh, Kenya takes advantage and decolonizes uh, international uh, laws and uh, pushes uh, more for the African agenda. Uh, at, uh, uh, with its status currently and also try to influence a resolution like she says even at a regional level um, so that it's international and regional and we're actually uh, you know demystifying both uh, <laughs> international laws and making them very African and giving African solutions because um, conflict was always there in the African setup but we always had our own African refugee law how to resolve it so why not um, bring it up to standards in terms of uh, the legal requirements and resolve it? For example, there's, uh, the, uh, I think uh, African states passed the African passport um, that is supposed to help us move around to promote economic integration. Why not you know, take it at all? Why, why can't Kenya just you know, push for it to actually have more, a stronger force and kind of to get it and encourage movement? So that if uh, we are Somalia is insecure, is insecure, is insecure has, uh, has a lot of uh, conflict since the 90s, probably other, because of the passport, people would have trickled down and uh, something else would have come, would have come rising. But uh, it, uh, it, uh, uh, this position is a one-time chance. And uh, I think we can, they can use it to actually even open up discussions of the refugee crisis in Africa and uh, what can be done about it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, uh, Matoki, for that. I think moving uh, the end of our conversation, uh, this is just an open uh, flow, like uh, occasion to everybody here to give a last word as a solution to you know our topic. Since we know there is a system, there is so many things that have been, you know, there in place working but not properly. 
uh, so far after our discussion. So what can be a solution? Just one, two words uh, on that and saying like if we come up with ABCD, I think it can resolve this insecurity issue that uh, the Kenyan government is trying to, you know, to work on. Please just as we are just okay. going. Yes. Uh, final remarks, two things. Um, we have proper systems and uh, proper checks as it, uh, in, 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 our, in our framework as a country. Um, we should take advantage of that and make use of that. Number two, the refugee problem has always been there. It will continue to be there. Kenya may actually, God forbid, one day end up, Kenyans may end up being refugees. And it's, it's, it's not something that uh, people wish upon themselves. It's not a problem they bring upon themselves. And as such, we should be very progressive because we are one of the strongest pillars in the continent to actually find a solution. You can imagine if Kenya came up with a proper local integration solution that other countries like Uganda, Rwanda can actually can copy and we can, can find a proper solution to it. Thank so you so much. Maybe Hugh, Ajak. Yeah, okay. In looking at solutions, it is always good to look at how other countries have actually uh, dealt with the crisis so that you can actually borrow best practices. So looking at how the first world countries, Kenya right now is, is not longer the third world. If I am not wrong, Kenya is no longer the third world, it's, it's around the second world country. And they have that capacity building. And so the best thing I can say is that uh, as a solution, Kenya should actually work with the refugee agencies to try and build more capacity to enable uh, a fast integration of the refugees, yeah? Because UNHCR is helping refugees to actually have education and to be people who are dependable, yeah? So the Kenyan government can actually come in and tap from that resource. If these people have special skills that they can help the nation, then they should be integrated. That is the first thing. And that's how you're seeing there are no crises in places like UK and US. Not that there are no refugees. Mm. There are so many of them. But what they do is that they try to incorporate them and see how they can contribute to the economy. Some people go there, they are not learned. And UK, these are people, who, these are the sources of knowledge yeah, that we are trying to acquire here. So, but everyone will have always something small to do. I know the issues of unemployment and corruption in Africa are a major thing that is drawing us back. But I believe Kenya can actually make use of some refugees and skills that they have. So, and that will lessen the crisis. Uh, that will lessen the refugee crisis and the national security issues that are there being said. Number two, uh, just like uh, Julia said, I want to back it up a little bit. You know, Kenya is a country that believes in the rule of law. And I'm very happy, particularly with the current trend that Kenya is going, because Kenya is the only country where I feel safe as uh, someone who could be an activist. You feel safe because Kenya is where people actually uh, use ideas and, they, and uh, the opinion of one person is respected and uh, you cannot be targeted because of your opinion, you see. And Kenya... It, everyone is seeing that Kenya is a good place. Even some people are coming to Kenya not because they are refugees, but they, they feel safe in Kenya. So uh, that situation, you become attractive because of what you do and what you offer. And don't just reject people again because of the good things that people see uh, from you, you see. So I believe uh, Kenya is, should allow people to intermingle freely and, uh, yeah, and uh, possibly... Uh, allow the East African community perspective like they have said, you know, we have an East African community. Mm. One challenge that I have right now as a refugee is that I cannot travel outside the country. I have to be in Kenya. 
Yeah. So why don't they bring the issue of uh, the ref- of the East African passport so that I, as a refugee, maybe I will get an employment with the East African community. Yeah. yeah. I can stay anywhere. Maybe in Arusha, okay. uh, in Isi, in Addis Ababa, all those places. They will have reduced the crisis. Sure. Thank you yeah. so much, Jack. Maybe later. Um, <clears throat> I think uh, I'd, I'd say that times uh, times change, situations change, and if you keep looking back at the problems from the past and using them as reasons for for now, we'll we'll be stuck. Um, so, Kenya, the uh, Matoke had mentioned uh, in in sense of an action plan. Let's implement those action plans. Let's have um oversight uh committees doing monitoring and evaluation of those plans how far have we come let's integrate more of the refugee leaders into our decision uh uh decision making table let them help us help them mm. for lack of a better word yeah that's what i would say would thank be thank you thank you so much and Jinga, finally um, my final words would be um um i I feel that Kenya is so um, well positioned mm-hmm. to be um, to, to to be a, a guiding light within the whole continent on how this refugee situation is actually handled. We have the capability to do that, and I, I can see that there are challenges even mm-hmm. in, when, with regard to implementation. And of course, Kenya wants to be able to to, to thrive in its own ways. Yeah, but I think. One of the we one of the things that prevents uh, stops us actually from coming up with from implementing all the wonderful systems and plans that we have is actually the fear of of this great unknown. What happens if we locally integrate refugees? What happens if we give them so much so much power? I think we, that that's that's one of the barriers. We should look at it up. What 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 um, human rights should we accord to these our fellow human beings? Mm-hmm. Because you know. It, as 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 uh, has been said, it can turn around. Tables yeah. can turn. You know, sure. how would we want to be treated? Yeah. yeah? So yeah. let us let us take advantage. Yes, as as Biabo mentioned, let us take advantage of the systems that we have, the positions that we have, the the the, the plans, the laws, the regulations, the instruments that we have, mm-hmm. and actually treat the the refugees, the the migrants, the asylum seekers with proper with their inherent human rights, with human rights. Mm. We should actually gun for that in everything that we do. Yes. Thank you so much, our panelists, for such a candid conversation. And I really appreciate you for coming today. And that marks the end of our conversation for today on peace and security. The conversation continues. And I want just to thank our partners who are here today. The Refupart, one of our partners, we have Anika Initiative, and also we have GIZ, that is the Civil Peace Service and the Special Initiative for Displacement. Thank you so much for joining us. And also I want to thank the sign language interpreters. We have Faith Oliech, who did the sign language interpretation, and Clinton Anayo, who was so good at it. We're looking forward for the third forum, and thank you so much for joining us. I want to welcome, and we'll finish with a high note, the spoken word artist, Shiki. Thank you. The paradox goes, silence kills, so they say, but so does speaking up. You're more palatable when you're silent, but silence in itself can be a death sentence.
Silence can be a deadly thing. It can be used as a weapon. It can act as complacency when urgent voices need to rise up and speak. It can muffle already silenced voices. And aren't we taught to stay silent in the face of oppression? To be grateful for the crumbs that are offered on a silver platter? To not ask for more? Doesn't the saying go that beggars can't choose? Can't even ask for what is rightfully yours? Is to learn that you're not even human. That the voice you have left is not your own. Because you're more palatable when you're silent. But silence in itself can be a death sentence. It is biting your tongue and swallowing your words, holding your breath so that you're not too much, too political, dragging your opinions down people's throats because you're more palatable on your silence. But silence in itself can be a death sentence. It is tiptoeing about humanity issues and then being met with unsolicited opinions by privileged voices that make you the butt of the joke and then having to awkwardly laugh it off as if actual lives aren't at stake because you're more palatable when you're silent. But silence in itself can be a death sentence. It is trying to not be too aggressive, too much, too sensitive for insensitive jokes because you're more palatable when you're silent. But silence in itself can be a death sentence. So in this moment, at this time, I choose to remember. I choose to remember the countries that are still fighting for their peace. I choose to remember those activists that died because of their eyelashes. I choose to remember those who no one will stand up for them or speak up for them because that in itself can be a death sentence. I choose to remember the families separated, the children lost, the women who died, the men who were raped and scarred. So a moment of silence for those who became collateral damage for political wars they didn't want to be in. A moment of silence for those who died in battlefields they didn't want to be in. A moment of silence for those names that aren't good enough to be remembered in history. A moment of silence for the daughters gone, for the child whose innocence is lost, for the voices that will never be heard, will never be sung, will never be praised, lifted or raised, will never be anything. For the voices that have been forced into silence, that have been forced into silence, we have been forced into silence, forced into silence, silence. I need you to remember that even though you're more palatable when you're silent, for some of us, silence in itself can be a death sentence.
The online dialogue series of Refu Poets was commissioned by the Special Initiative on Displacement SIF, program of the Civil Peace Service of GIZ. We appreciate the discussions and insights shared. The opinions expressed in these dialogue series are those of the speakers. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions or views of GIZ.